Here's what we need to remember with things like SBOM and VEX. The important things they are trying to achieve is transparency. It isn't necessarily about all the other things I think that everybody's trying to make it out to be. It is driving transparency. And the future of where we will be will be, I'm going to know what's in the things that I procure and everybody's going to know what's in the things that I sell. That's what it's trying to do because that transparency brings attention, attention to a lot of things, how we secure it, what's leaving the building as far as what's going public. Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today with me, I have Christine Gatsby. Christine is a product security leader at BlackBerry. Christine, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Christine, it would be lovely if you can just give a little bit of a background about yourself. What do you do? Where do you work? What are you responsible for? Sure. So I'm the vice president of product security at BlackBerry, and I am responsible for all of the 200, I believe today, maybe 19 or 20 binaries that we have in market, consumed by a lot of highly regulated customers, banks, governments, you name it, those that care most about security, we sell software too. So I'm responsible to make sure that our products are secure in their environment. And that comes with a lot of responsibility. So everything from making sure we do the pre-market security work, threat modeling and design review and guidance and all those things in through the programs like checking software releases before they leave the door, security communications, and then all the way to our P-cert that does vulnerability management back into the product teams. That's amazing. That's a pretty interesting role considering the types of customers that BlackBerry has now. It's got to be intense and very high stakes, I'm guessing. Now, Christine, your title is also product security, which I'm very interested in learning more about what do you define as product security? Yeah. And I know that's, you know, highly discussed and maybe even contested in some circles. I've definitely had a lot of really tough discussions on what that means because it is different. And then if you talk about application versus product, sometimes, you know, you're talking about completely different things. So how we define that is things that the company sells to make money or drive revenue and carries with it our own customer, whether that's enterprise or different risk. And, you know, if you think about BlackBerry and our customer base, it isn't just highly regulated too. We've got all of the IoT type products with QNX and in the vehicle. So we've got everything from, you know, embedded RTOS on one side all the way to endpoint management. So our definition of product security is very wide and it does include just everything that we release out of the company. Fantastic. So that must be very interesting because product security hasn't been around for a very long time as a terminology, right? And I'm guessing you've been around at BlackBerry for a long time. So I'm guessing this has changed over a period of time. Maybe you can share some light about when you started at BlackBerry, that this world of securing the software, the products you're building, how did that look like back then? What does it look like now? And maybe it doesn't have to be specific to BlackBerry, but just in general in the industry. 
That's a great question because in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it's changed dramatically. I mean, I can remember back in the day being at Microsoft, came to BlackBerry from Microsoft, and it was really just this thing that we knew was up and coming and we started to sort of get worried about it. This is back, you know, 2005, six, seven era when the first SDLC, the real first model of an SDLC actually was put together at Microsoft. And I can remember being there when we started to do things like gate product releases for vulnerabilities, and you would have thought the world was coming to an end. It was crazy that anybody would do that. And there was gnashing of teeth and and tears. And, and those leaders who really cared about security really broke a lot of things in the way of secure software. And it was amazing to watch that. Incredible. It was like an industry being born. And, you know, then it was a PR problem. It was, you know, customers calling to complain about something and the PR team would answer. If you call and complain, you would get somebody from the actual PR team that would answer the call. So, I mean, if you think about that where we were and here we are now, it's absolutely crazy that in 15 years we have managed to turn the dial from, you know, a PR problem and gating software releases being complete heresy to, you know, we're being regulated and defined by the highest government. So it's come a long way very quickly. And I started in that world back at Microsoft doing organizational development. So helping people understand how to build these security teams. So it's been an incredible, incredible, incredible journey. And a lot of us started out either like myself with an IT degree and getting into the IT side or, you know, in software development, coming into mm -hmm. software development and creating software. So I think you've got a pretty strong bench of leaders that sort of came from one side or the other. You, you had to learn it either way. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and it's phenomenal. Like if you really think about where it all started, even at Microsoft, if I remember correctly, there was a memo from Bill Gates way back when, and I think in 2002, about trustworthy computing, where his dictate was every product has to be built with security in mind. And that's what shifted a lot of the mindset back in the day at Microsoft, which resulted in the frameworks and the SSDLC and a bunch of other things that came out of that those few years of really, really focused security work in the product. Do you remember that time? Were you around at that time? I do, but what was that? You know, I mean, things like that happen and then, you know, you don't have a standard. There's no, right. you know, oh, secure design software, great. You know, what was that? I mean, I think about my friend, Adam Shostak. Adam has been around forever dealing with this kind of stuff. But if you ask him, and I haven't asked him this, but now I'm going to, you know, what did we do back then? It was, you know, like baking cookies out of the Pillsbury package versus a scratch made recipe that you learned in France. I mean, it's completely different, right? right. Back then, I think what we knew about it was so small. And now we have all these lessons learned and forging in the fire of, of exploits. So, you know, we've had to refine. As criminals get smarter, we have to be smarter. So you have an industry that's absolutely evolved. So I do remember that. But if I compared that to where we are today, it's not even not even close. <laughs> right, right. And since all of these frameworks have evolved, methodologies have evolved, processes have evolved, are there any frameworks that you see getting more and more adoption these days in the modern agile world of complex software supply chains? Yeah, really great question. And I'll turn this maybe into a piece of advice as well. I think if you really want a crystal ball, there are a couple of things I would keep my eye on. You need to keep your eye and your ear definitely on things like NIST 800-218, the secure software development framework, and then CISA's secure by design model. And I want to asterisk that one because with the endorsement of partners like, you know, Canada and Japan and Norway and Israel and Singapore and the Czech Republic and Korea, you know these are going to stick. And CISA's done a really great job of sort of being the North Star for these other governments to say, okay, you guys have put so much time and effort into building these frameworks. 
We're going to jump on board too, because we do realize that recreating these wheels isn't going to be effective. So, you know, that's my advice there is those are the two main things for just pure software development and looking at how to build secure software. Those are the two. Got it. So the first one was NIST 800-218 SSDF. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. was the other one? CISA? The other one was, this is secure by design model. And that's the model. Right and you you just put that into a search engine, you'll come up with their PDF version. Mm -hmm. It is a model by which, like I said, all the other, you've gotten an endorsement from a lot of highly regulated partners. So those things that are in there, those two are really going to be the sort of standards that are going to flush out and allow you to do things like SBOM and VEX and all the other things that the industry is pushing that are more operational in nature. But that's kind of where I would start. Right, right. I've been hearing a lot more about those as well. And uh, podcast guests have talked about these in the in the prior few episodes. And what I have, and I would love to get your thought on it, what I've been wondering about these recommendations are coming out from NIST and CISA. What's your point of view on adoption of those? Are they going to be a requirement at some point for a certain class of companies or they're going to stay as recommendations for the foreseeable future? Yeah, uh, what a great question. So... Here's what we need to remember with things like SBOM and VEX. The important things they are trying to achieve is transparency. It isn't necessarily about all the other things I think that everybody's trying to make it out to be. It is driving transparency. And the future of where we will be will be, I'm going to know what's in the things that I procure and everybody's going to know what's in the things that I sell. That's what it's trying to do because that transparency brings Attention, attention to a lot of things, how we secure it, what's leaving the building as far as what's going public. When an exploit happens, like a log4j or whatever, everybody's going to know if you're impacted or not. It's not going to be you trying to figure it out. Your customers are going to know before you are. So that's where we are headed. And absolutely, I think that we can see some of the federal government efforts in the U.S. where it is going to gate procurement. We are literally, I mean, myself included, waiting on FAR language to tell us that they will not buy products until we've met, you know, these different criteria, which is how it should be. And I think you're seeing an industry in various stages of grief. I think, you know, if you have been thinking through a lot of this already, you're not as surprised. I think there's a lot of companies that are very surprised. I have a lot of peers in the industry who absolutely cannot believe we're trying to do this and it's the gnashing of teeth. In But, you know, reality is that we have more regulation in the frying pan that you're using to cook your chicken dinner than we do in software running critical industries and critical infrastructure. So it's not something that isn't warranted. It is something that needs to mature. Different things altogether. So I think while you can be in your stages of grief, the reality is you need to move towards acceptance so that you can start preparing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a great point. I mean, it, it's an eventuality, right? It's just going to happen. There's no way around it. I can see, I have a line of sight to that happening very, very quickly within the federal government ecosystem. What's your thought on adoption of some of these things within the commercial enterprise environment that doesn't have to deal with the federal government or state ramp day to day? You know, when we start looking at the cost of insecure software, meaning that as reporting requirements ramp up, you know, from data breaches, et cetera, and you are a business and you're procuring tools or automation or IT infrastructure or whatever you're procuring, when the cost of that starts to weigh in for insecurity, you will see procurement gates. So I think the federal government will lead the way, but I think industry will see them leading the way and will make those same decisions. And if I'm paying, you know, 3x my cyber insurance, you know, this year than I was last year, because, you know, this data breach happened and this data breach happened and this data, well, then it's going to become cost effective to 
hold your software suppliers accountable. We are very, very quickly heading there. I'm starting to see it now. Well, I have been seeing it the last couple of years, but probably the last year more so than not, where I really think that we will see industry regulate as well as government by industry. So medical, financial, you know, those customers and industries that are really much more risk averse will start to pivot much faster than I think the rest of the industry will, but we will absolutely be there, 100%. Right. So you mentioned a few very interesting points. One is the potential of cyber insurance going 3x or multiple x because of lack of some information or it reducing if you make certain information available. So that points to me towards an incentive, right? So commercials and enterprises will act on things if either it's a requirement or if there's an incentive associated with it. Absolutely. So Absolutely. In, in, cyber insurance being one of the incentives, you also mentioned another point, which is there's more reporting requirements coming out. And is the SEC going after the public companies into security posture? Is that one of the reporting requirements or the SEC regulations coming in? Well, what I'm referring to is specific impact reporting requirements. So, you know, if you have been victim of ransomware, for example, you know, there's now recording requirements for you to disclose that. So what's going to happen is the shift of the ecosystem for products, product security, whether you're talking about application security product, at this point, it doesn't matter. If you sell a widget, that is going to make you money, if you don't build security into that at some point, it's going to get too costly for customers, whether that's enterprise or highly regulated or whoever, to procure software that doesn't take that into account. Because again, cyber insurance companies are going to start asking the question, you know, who are your suppliers? What security, you know, bars have they actually met? What have they actually done? And as soon as that starts to translate down there, Procurement's going to have to get tighter on actual products, which in the industry for a long time, it was really focused on, you know, IT infrastructure. You could ask mm -hmm. a lot of questions, but the vendor, the, the technology producer wasn't necessarily held accountable as part of the supply chain. So right. it's the supply chain itself maturing. And I mean, again, speaking from Embedded, where I have, you know, one part of my company that sells to other sellers, resellers, right? We're in vehicles, we're in tons of stuff where... I am selling an operating system to a vehicle manufacturer who is then building it into something and selling it to something else, right? So we've got everything from every line to that and, you know, products that do endpoint security. And so we have the highly regulated customers purchasing. And that's where I really see the two sides coming together is that we will be and everybody will be held accountable for that security of the widget just due mainly to cost, right? right. It's just too expensive to buy insecure software because you got to do all these other things, you know, your insurance is more expensive and it could cause you a data breach. So you got to take these other things into account. And, you know, maybe you've got patches coming every two days instead of every two weeks. It just gets more costly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad some of these incentive structures are growing or requirement structures are growing because that just pushes the industry to move faster in a particular direction. Having purchased cyber insurance previously in, in one of my previous jobs, it was wild. All they ask for is like, do you have antivirus involved or installed on your laptops? And, you know, some like absolutely basic things like 2FA, which obviously you should have, but it, it never went into any of the other nuances because we used to build software for very large enterprises and they were underwrite the entire business from a cyber insurance perspective based on if you had antivirus installed or not, right? So it was wild. Now it's changing. I'm hoping that that they move quickly on things like uh, the CISA and the SSDF frameworks and leverage some of those controls as well to, to underwrite these businesses. In terms of the trends that you're seeing in the industry, like are there any interesting things that you're seeing, you're noticing that are exciting to you? Okay, 
trends in the industry. I think one of the most interesting things that I see, maybe not a great thing, but something to keep in mind for you if you're listening. I run into a lot of really bigger company leaders where they're lacking telemetry, which is always really interesting to me. They sell a bunch of software, but they don't know what's in it. Always very interesting to me. And so I, I get asked a lot for advice on how do I just figure out what's in my software? And, you know, for people outside of product security, that might sound like complete heresy that you would even ask that question. But this is reality. Development teams build stuff and you go and you make money. And sometimes you don't always know what's in it. And you think you know what's in it and then you don't. So that is the first thing I would say is just to make sure that you have a really accurate list of stuff that's in all of your widgets. And if you sell more than one product or more than one version of a product, or you have four versions of a product in market and you haven't end of life or end of service, the old ones, that is another thing. You know, attack surface reduction is the other one that I have been talking to a lot of people about lately. But that would be my first thing that I'm seeing in the industry. And the second most interesting thing I'm seeing right now, I think, well, two other things. One is lack of tooling. We clearly are not mature enough to have automation tooling on the software side. It's getting better, but just tools that do absolute polar opposite things, there's no way really to connect them yet. So we're really struggling with that as an industry. So I would say get involved. There's a lot, you know, CISA does a great job with working groups, you know, get involved there. And I think that the other thing would be don't underestimate the procurement gate. I'm really seeing a lot more of that. And I'm finding it very interesting that I'm seeing companies that I would not have expected to put language in contracts that really their intent is to put the onerous of liability back on the seller. Right. So remember, it's a liability hot potato game. That's all it is. And so that is really interesting as I see that kind of mature faster than I kind of thought it would, but it's absolutely headed our way. So just interesting things happening, definitely. That's amazing. I'm curious about the first thing you mentioned, reducing attack surface. What does that mean in the context of software security? Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at it. So if you take a software product that's in market and you think about it from a source code perspective, that's one thing, and it's a behemoth of source code. But once you release that in a binary somewhere or it has availability to a customer, it becomes a different attack surface, right? You're not looking at all of the source code. You're looking at whatever is in that one binary of the source code. And then you're looking at another binary if you have it. And like I said, I have 200, I don't know, 18 or 19, I think, in market today. So you really have to understand what's in all of those. I did a talk at Black Hat, I think it was 2000, gosh, 17 or 18, long time ago, about cataloging that and making sure that you don't just understand what's in your software. But how many versions of LibTIF do you have? You know, how many are in each product? And how many do you have? So that, you know, if the version you have is, is exploited, then how do you know where it is in your company or in your products or what customers are running it? You've got to be able to get to that absolute telemetry picture to be prepared for something like a Log4j. We, you know, when Log4j happened, it was a tough thing to do, but we were able to look at our attack surface in like, you know, three or four minutes. So it's just something that we've been prioritizing for a very long time where there are still companies that couldn't tell you where it is in there. That's the, just the truth. I run mm. into it all the time. So I think if you really have to put effort into understanding how many versions of, you know, OpenSSL, V8, whatever it is, you know, lots of products have multiple copies of that in right. it. So right. you could have 18 versions of the same library. You got to know where every single one of those is, or you've, you know, patched one end and left the other gate open. So it's a science. And if you don't pay attention to it now, it's the kind of monumental effort that you can't go back 
and just sort of start to figure it out when the procurement gate's locked already, you know, and you're trying to sell something and you found out you can't sell it because you didn't do the work. That's I know there are a lot of leaders very nervous about this. I talk to them all the time. Absolutely something you should be nervous about if you don't have that telemetry. Right, right. Yeah. And I remember back in the day, Log4j, vast majority of the remediation efforts were about managing spreadsheets of Log4j. Where does it exist? How many hundreds and hundreds of things? Yes. Is it, right? Like it's, uh, yep. it's, it's a tedious process. Like if you don't know, yeah. you discover it. And a lot of it comes from third-party software that may or may not be relevant. And then figuring out who owns it, how do you manage it? How do you try it, to- It is, you know, Black, we're really unique and we have a tool that does this. We catalog all of our binaries and the contents. And so I can press a button and tell you where all these things are. And our professional services team uses that in some of their engagements. And it's become very popular as of lately, which just, you know, we've spent a lot of time working on that because back in the day when it wasn't cool, we had to be, right? That's, you know, one of the reasons we're on this side of it is that when we were in the handset, we didn't have a choice. We just had to figure out how to do this. We built our own tool and lo and behold, it turns out the world needed it. So here we are. <laughs> right, right. So now as a product security leader, how do you envision getting to success? Meaning what are the few things or few pieces of advice that you have for other product security professionals for them to be successful in their role at their companies based on your experience? I think the first thing that I would say would be don't let things like SBOM and VEX get away from you. I think I think about this in two different ways. I can pop in an open source tool and build an SBOM. How is my customer going to read that, right, is the question. And be ready for that transparency piece. No matter how you feel or where you are in your stages of grief around transparency, it's coming. You know, we're not going to argue with it. It's The train has left the building. So... I think we just need to accept that and work towards it. And that is my first advice. Don't let that get away from you. It's a lot of effort and be ready for that impact. So again, it goes back to telemetry. If you don't know what's in that SBOM, you are going to be very surprised by what's in that SBOM. Is always that way. So my second piece of advice is really understand the tooling landscape. It's very difficult right now. We are, as an industry, again, I can tell you we've built our own tools. The industry is behind, right? We're barreling down the tracks, driving this transparency, and then we lack a lot of software-defined you know, automation tools. So my third thing is get involved with these industry efforts that are really collecting some of the top minds in this industry are really working together. There are a lot of people contributing to, you know, how do we get here? How do we, how do we get from A, B to C? And you know, it's going to take a collective mind. This isn't easy. You know, we are literally are changing an industry and it's not easy. So don't think you're going to do it by yourself, I guess, is the, you know, nobody has a, a blank checkbook without has some accountability. Well, at least I don't. So make sure you're swimming in the same lane that everybody else is to, to get there, I think. Such a phenomenal piece of advice here. That's awesome. And I can tell you that you have good thought through advice. And on that topic, I know you also spend a lot of time mentoring other people Tell us a little bit more about what drives you to mentorship. Why are you so passionate about it? You know, I've really been blessed to have a lot of really strong mentors in my life. And so I always really try to think through how I'm going to give back to that. And I also think about there are so many areas of security that are just really underserved for, you know, underrepresented minorities and women in general. And it's not that we can't hire them or don't hire them. They don't always know how to get into the right place. So sometimes it just takes somebody like me helping them do critical thinking, not solving problems for them, but teaching them how to solve their own problems. And so I do a lot of work with people that feel stuck or want to get into security and really don't know how to start because I know you and I share this opinion. 
you know, I've never met anybody who I can't think of, hey, you should do this or start here because you have a passion in this. Security is the biggest field. I mean, you know, you and I were talking to one of the people in my company who does, you know, PR before this. Her and I don't have the same job, but yet she has a passion for other things that I do and she's in the industry and she got here somehow. We all did. So I really, really enjoy helping people think through how to help themselves and do critical thinking. You know, don't just solve a problem by buying a tool. Think through how the problem started in the first place and what really needs to be done to solve it versus just, you know, going out and hiring a consultant or buying a tool. So I really enjoy that. I have a goal to help a certain number of people a year do this. And it's one of the things I enjoy the most. That's amazing. And that is an important nuance here, especially because now tooling has become easy, commodity, very good access to tooling. So tooling is not really the difficult part these days. It's more about how do you apply your mind to the problems that the organization is facing? And yes. a lot of it is multifaceted. It's about people, it's about process, it's about technology, right? Security being in a situation where you have sort of quote unquote accountability without the authority to actually do much in most organizations, right? And that is a nuanced place to be in where you can't dictate things and you don't want to dictate things, but really it's your job to manage the risk for the organization. So how do you do that? And that involves a lot of critical thinking. So I appreciate that you're you're focused on developing that particular skill set because I truly believe that that is a type of approach that will help all of us uplevel the industry to a to a much better situation, much better place. Thank you. So if somebody who is listening is interested in getting your advice, reaching out to you, how can they reach out to you? Great question. LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Christine Gadsby, just send me a note. I have helped a lot of people mentor match. So it's also not always easy to know who to reach out to when you know you need a mentor or know who to mentor if you would like, you know, to be a mentor yourself. So definitely just reach out to me. I'm happy to use the power of the amazing network that I have that I'm blessed to have and help find, you know, either a mentor or a mentee either way. Fantastic. Thank you, Christine, for all of your help to the broader community. And I really appreciate you being on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.